Hi, this is Pastor Andrew here at Oak Ridge Baptist Church in San Antonio, Texas. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can check us out online at www.orbcnet.com. Better yet, come by and visit us at the corner of Wurzbach and Vance Jackson in northwest San Antonio. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook of Gideon, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judah, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with the lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he, Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So they asked him again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that, that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom he gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut his, ear, his right ear off. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into his sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas who was a high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door, so the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl, who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of the, this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made charcoal fire because of it was cold, and there were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. <clears throat> All right, y'all be seated. If, at this time, our little kids would go out with Miss Sharon. She's going to take you guys over to Children's Church. <clears throat> y'all pray with me. Dear Lord, God, I thank you so much for the opportunity that you have given me to preach your word to your people. Lord, I ask this morning that you would be with me, that you would speak through me, that you would give me the words when I don't have them, that the faith of the people here would rest on your truth and not my wisdom. 
God, I pray that you would work in the hearts of the people here and that they would hear you spoken and that they would go out and do your will afterwards. Lord, I ask these things in your holy name. Amen. Well, we are now on week three um, of a scary and destructive war in the Ukraine. And it seems like every time we get, we turn on our news, things are getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, and it's, it's hard in the midst of all of this to find any glimmer of hope or um, really kind of any glimmer of joy in the midst of all of this. But that's one of the reasons that I am so thankful for memes. For those of you who don't know what a meme is, it is a picture with a caption that tells a story, usually in a humorous way. And so even in the midst of all of the chaos coming out of the Ukraine, there have been some really funny memes in the midst of it. Probably my favorite meme is a picture of the air map over Ukraine. I don't know if anybody's seen this one. As many of you guys know, they've shut down all of the flights into or out of the Ukraine. And so if you look at an airline map, like one of these maps where they track all of the planes going into and out of there, you will see airplanes in Europe and airplanes all around. Even at this point, there were some airplanes in, in Russia and Turkey, and there's this huge mass of airplanes and this big gaping hole right over the Ukraine because, you know, nobody wants to fly over the Ukraine. They're shooting planes down there. Except for one plane that's kind of coming out of India. It's Air India, and they're right in the middle. Somebody didn't get the memo. And that has been captioned in so many different ways. But it captures the madness of what we're seeing. As, as people have no idea what to do. It seems like there's total and utter chaos. And, and honestly, as, as I read the newspapers and... and uh, and go through and watch the news, this can kind of infect us, right? It can kind of get into our, can kind of get into our lives and, and begin to affect everything that we see around us. We see the, the hopelessness and the, the, um, the chaos over there, and, and it, we can't help but be affected by it. I, I know that for, at least for me, I find myself being down a lot. I find myself feeling uh, like the world is out of control. And, and I think that it is at times like that, at times when we see the disconnectedness of the world around us, the chaos in the world around us as evil men do evil things and, and we seem powerless, it's important at times like that for us to focus on truth. This week, we begin a, a new series in the Gospel of John. As you, as you know, we've been going through the Gospel of John for quite a while now, and we've kind of broken it up into little mini-series. And the series that we're going to be going through for the next couple of weeks is, is the Passion of Christ. We're going to be looking at John's 
version, John's retelling of Christ's death and his passion. And it's going to correspond to the season of Lent that we are in, this time of preparation as, as we prepare to celebrate Easter. And hopefully what we, what we see in this is that even when things are at their most chaotic, even when things are at their most destructive, we can hold it to the truth that Christ is still in control. See, as we celebrate the holy season of Lent, as we go through the story of the Passion, what we're going to see is example after example of how even the worst things, even the most destructive things, even the most sinful things that have ever happened, all of those things are turned by God for his glory. Now, as we study the book of John and as we look at kind of the passion story, uh, what we're going to find is that it's, on the surface, it seems very different than what we're used to reading. So if you've been at this church for very long, you know that uh, during the celebration of Easter on Monday, Thursday, which I would encourage all of you to come to, one of the things that we do is we read the passion. Okay? So we read the story of Christ's betrayal, his trial, his crucifixion, uh, and all of that kind of prepares us for Easter morning when we come in and we celebrate the resurrection. Um, and we read mostly out of the book of Matthew and out of the book of Luke. Okay, And if you've read that over and over and over again for many years, and then you read the story of the Passion in John, it's going to feel weird. It's going to seem different because John talks about different events. He's going to talk about things in different ways, and it may be a little bit jarring, but what I want you to see as we go through this is that John gives us the opportunity to see a different side of what happened. Now, we've talked about this many times as we've gone through the book of John. John is not a history. He is not writing a news article about the life of Jesus. What he is doing is taking events, real, true events in Jesus' life, and he's arranging them in a particular way for a particular reason. And the passion is no different. And so John is going to talk about different things during the passion of Christ. But by studying those, we get a much fuller picture of what is actually happening to Jesus. One of the things that we find in the Gospel of John is that he is going to spend a lot more time talking about the disciples and how they interacted and how they responded. We get a much more human vision of these disciples. And much of that very human vision isn't very flattering. In fact, as I, as I went through and read the passion narrative from, from John, I, I saw that Peter actually doesn't come out looking very good at all in, in this story. Now, John and Peter were friends, so he may have been taking some shots at his buddy, but, um, but what we do get is a view of, dis, of the disciples not as superhuman superheroes, but as very fallible human beings. This morning, as we begin, Jesus has completed his farewell discourse. Those of you who have been kind of studying along with us know that Jesus has spent the last three chapters, four chapters, 
walking along after he finished doing his last supper. He's walking, got up. His disciples and him are walking down this path. They're kind of walking through the nighttime streets of Jerusalem. And as Jesus would often do, he's teaching as he walks. So he's walking and talking and telling them about all the things that are going to happen and he's preparing them and then towards the end he's praying for them as as he prays that God would empower them and build them in strength. And now we have this kind of chronological marker in the book of John. It kind of tells us what's happening. We read in John chapter 18 verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, by that he means the entire farewell discourse, he went out with his disciples across the brook of Kidron Okay, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And so as they kind of come down out of the city, if you, if you know what Jerusalem looks like, it's kind of built in this, Syria, in this big hill with valleys all around. As he leaves the gate, they kind of go down this, this valley into what we would consider to be a wadi, like a dry riverbed. It's where when it rained in Jerusalem, which wasn't often, the water would flow down through this kind of valley. Uh, it's also where all of the blood and the nasty stuff from the sacrifices would kind of drain. So it's not a nice place. It's not a great place for them to be walking, but they're kind of walking through this wadi and they go up to this garden. And the garden is called Gethsemane, which sounds very nice. But Gethsemane simply means the, wine, the, the olive press. And so what we think is this was a walled enclosure where there were some olive trees and an, a, a, an olive press. Uh, and this was a place that was, uh, that what makes this place important is the fact that it is outside of the city, but not outside of kind of the geographical boundaries that Jewish law had set for Passover. So if you were a Jew and you were in, uh, in Jerusalem at the time, you, you were either in the city or you were out of the city. You were either participating in Passover or you were not participating in Passover. And they had drawn this boundary around the city and said, you can be here and participate in Passover or you're, you're outside of it and then you can't. And so for Jesus and his disciples to participate in Passover, they needed to kind of stay within the geographical boundaries. And so they found an area that they had come to often. It may have been somebody that knew Jesus, maybe a, a, a follower who had a little bit of wealth who allowed them to meet in this enclosure. But whatever the reason was, he and his disciples made their way to this place that they had gone to often. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because Jesus is in hiding. If the authorities are looking for you and Jesus knows that they are, it's generally not a good idea to go to a place where you're expected to go. I don't know if any of you guys have been fugitives from the law before. I have not, but I've read about it. And you don't go to regular, usual places because that's where they know to look for you. But Jesus isn't hiding, right? Jesus is fully in control of what's happening. He's not trying to avoid what's about to happen. In fact, he has gone to a place where he can pray and prepare his heart. And in due time, what he knows will happen does happen. In verse 2 and 3, we read, Now Judas, who had betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And so I want you to picture in your mind, Jesus has his disciples. They're in this kind of enclosure, and they're waiting. 
and he's praying. This is where we see in the, in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we read about Jesus going and praying so hard that drops of blood come out of him almost as sweat, and where he cries out to his father, Father, let this cup pass from me. And, and, and then he says, not my will, but thy will. Uh, this is where the disciples fall asleep, and he goes and wakes them up. All of those things are happening kind of in the space between these two verses. And once all of that is done, they begin to hear noises in the valley. Now, this is a, a large party. This is not a, uh, a surreptitious uh, strike by kind of an elite band of people going in like Delta Force to take out this guy. No, this is a mob that they have created. And, and you get kind of this, this view of everybody who is involved in the conspiracy against Jesus. You've got Judas who we all know is the traitor, who's been talked about over and over again in the Gospel of John, really more than any other Gospel. We hear about Judas in this Gospel. We hear that Judas had gone and procured uh, a band of soldiers. Now, the soldiers, uh, these were not the normal temple guards or the people that kind of would have watched the streets when the word that he's using here is a detachment of soldiers from the Antonian fortress. These are Roman soldiers. These are guys that have been sent to Jerusalem during the Passover to maintain order. Okay, these are, these are the real deal. These are Rome's trained, hired, armed killers. These guys don't care about anyone or anything. Their job is killing. That's what they do for a living. And somehow Judas has gone and through establishing his, his, uh, his, uh, um, his, his betrayal of Christ and he's talked to different people and, they, and they've kind of come together and assembled this group and they decided, you know what, we need some muscle with us so we're going to bring these Roman soldiers. The Romans are involved, right? But then there's another group of people that come with him and, and, and Paul or John talks about them as the, as the officers, right? And that word is probably describing the actual police or the temple guards, the people that would have been responsible for maintaining order, the people that would have had the power to arrest. And these are the direct representatives of the chief priests and the Pharisees. Now, when we read John, we, something interesting happens. If we read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it talks about the Sadducees. Right? These are the people that didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. That joke kills every time in church, I'm just telling you. If you grew up in Sunday school, you understand, right? There were two parties, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees were the temple party. The Pharisees were the party that believed in ritual purity and that were looking for the Messiah to come. right? And we know that these groups were bitter enemies of each other, and yet... Christ had unified them in their hatred of him. But John never mentions the Sadducees. Now, why was that? Because the temple was already destroyed at this point. John is writing very late, almost, almost at 100 AD. I mean, this is really, really late. By this time, there were no Sadducees because there was no temple. All the priests were done. Israel had been destroyed by this point, and so he's writing to people that didn't really understand who the Sadducees were. It would be like talking about the Whig Party. Nobody knows who the Whig Party is. Maybe Andy does at the back, right? Or the Bull Moose Party from American politics from the 1900s. Nobody knows who those are. The know-nothings, right? These are parties that don't mean anything to you, and so he describes them for who they were. These were the chief priests, the people that ran the temple, and the Pharisees. 
a different political party. Well, this group of people, all of the players are involved in this, and they all kind of group together to go out and arrest Jesus. I can remember uh, back in 2004 and 2005 when I served in Iraq, there was this kind of... um, this odd thing that would happen, uh, you'd be out doing these operations and, and all this kind of stuff, and then you get this piece of intelligence, and they would say, oh, there's a high-value target located at this location, and we're going to do this massive operation to go get them, right? And invariably, what would happen is everybody would want to get in on that operation so they could get the cool medal and get the combat action ribbon and get, be able to say on their after-action report that they were involved in the seizure of this guy. And so like a small, like surgical group of guys would turn into this massive convoy with trucks and trucks and trucks for miles, almost like that the operation near Kiev, and, and everybody's involved in it. And guess what? They never got anybody. Because when you have a huge group of people wandering through the night, everybody knows that they're coming. And so you have kind of this comic opera farce as all of these people have loaded up with swords and torches and and lanterns and they're all headed out in this great big posse to go rescue or go arrest a guy that they've seen every single day who has 12 followers with him and they go as if they're on a a huge military outing and see that Jesus enemies think that they're in charge they think they're in control of the narrative and everybody wants to be in on the kill Brothers and sisters, we live in a world filled with opponents and enemies who think they're in charge. Am I right? You can't, you can't turn on the television with find it without listening to somebody in power who thinks they're in charge talking about how powerful they are. Oh, look at this military that I have. Look at this amazing foundation that I have. I am a social media influencer, whatever that means. We are surrounded by people that think that they are in charge, that think that they have power. And invariably what happens when they come into contact with the living God is we begin to see how powerless they truly are. And so as this group of men approach Jesus, Jesus begins to reveal himself to them. This amazing things happen in verses 4 through 6. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Who do you seek? Uh, we have kind of this image here of this group of bumbling fools moving into this, into this garden. And Jesus is like, You people are so stupid, I'm going to have to help you arrest me. It's like he's coaching them. Like, who are you guys here for? What are you doing? And they're like, Oh, uh, we're, we're here for Jesus. And then he says something, and it's almost like he couldn't resist at this point. Like, he knows he's going to the cross. He knows that he's about to die. He knows that these guys are going to tie him up and beat him. But just for a second, he's like, you know what? I'm going to show you a little bit. And he doesn't say, yeah, that's me. Or come on, okay, arrest me. You know what he says? He says, I am. That's what he says in Greek, I am, which is kind of a weird grammatical thing for him to say. But he's using that description that he has used for himself before that ties himself to God's self-description, right? When Moses is in the desert talking to the burning bush and says, who should I say sent me to the Israelites? And God says, I am that I am. Tell them I am has sent you. 
And so when they say, we're looking for Jesus, Jesus says, I am. And you know what happens? They all fall down. When Jesus said this to them, when he said, I am, they all drew back and fell to the ground. Just for a moment, just for an instant, he allows the limitation of the incarnation to slip. He kind of opens the robe and shows them the glory and helps them understand who they're dealing with. And they respond the way that all people respond when they come into the presence of the living God. They fall to their knees. See, these guys think that they're in control. They think that they've come to arrest this man. They're going to put hands on him. And they have no idea how dangerous what they're doing is. They cannot conceive of the power that they are about to handle. And I would just put this to you guys. When we encounter people who think that they are in control, when we deal with people who are arrogant, who feel like they can oppress us, who feel like they have it all under control, so often they are at the very edge, the flaming edge of failure. And yet constantly we're surprised when they fall. Benjamin Franklin described this kind of thing when, or I'm sorry, Thomas Jefferson described this kind of thing when he said it's like holding a wolf by the ears. You can't hang on, but you don't dare let go. These guys think that they know what is happening, and yet the reality is Jesus is completely in control. He doesn't ask, he doesn't wait for the temple's task force to assail him. He, he doesn't wait for them to come up and grab him. He tells them exactly who he is, but here's the thing. They all fall to the ground, and you know what Jesus doesn't do? He doesn't run away. He could have killed every single one of them. They could have run away and gone someplace else, and yet Jesus waits for, <coughs> for them to get up off the ground, kind of dust themselves off, He's like, are, are you guys, are, are we ready now? Like, can we, can we do this? Are you ready to arrest me? Or like, we gonna, you want me to tie myself up? Like, what do you want to do? And they ask him again. Who, then he asks him again. He's like, whom do you seek? Like, seriously, guys, what are you here for? Uh, and they said, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I told you I'm him. So if you seek me, let these men go. Now, here's the other thing that he does. In the face of a massive party that is here to arrest him with the full force of Jewish law and Roman law, he's dictating to them how it's going to go. I want you to try that sometime when you get pulled over by the police. Tell them how it's going to go. Actually, don't do that. That's a really, really bad idea. You shouldn't do that. But he does. He's like, guess what? You're going to arrest me. You're not going to arrest anybody else. And they're like, oh, okay, that seems like a good idea. We'll totally just arrest you and none of your followers. See, Jesus is totally in control of this situation. He is still fulfilling the words that he had spoken earlier. Of those who you gave to me, I have lost not one. He's saying, I'm allowing this to happen, and I'm driving the narrative here, and only that which I allow will happen. Understand this, when we face things that are outside of our control, when we face those people who think that they are in power, the only things that they can do are the things that they have been allowed to do. At no time, 
is God out of control? When evil things happen, when, when horrible things are going on, all of the things that are going on in Ukraine, it is not because God has turned his back on the Ukrainians. He didn't get up to go to the bathroom. He's not sleeping right now. He is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. See, Jesus is not the victim he is actively in control of the events as they unfold. But somebody didn't get the memo. So somebody didn't understand what was happening here. And I have tried and tried to find a good illustration for what is about to happen. And the only one that I could find is an old video game reference. And for those of you who don't get it, I'm sorry, you'll probably go home and watch this. There is, a, there is a video from 2005, a classic, classic video. There is a group of people playing an online role-playing game. I know you, half of you guys just fuzzed out right now, but just... These guys have been playing this game for hours, most of them in their mom's basements, okay? Let's just be real. And they're coming up with this super complicated intense plan of how they're going to go and take down this really powerful uh, character in the other room. And they're just, and you can hear it on the video. They're like, oh, okay, John, you're going to do this. And Tom, you're going to go do that. And I'm, you're going to plus this guy. But what are the, and, and there's this incredibly arcane discussion where they're talking about ratios and points and all this kind of stuff. And they're like playing, you can tell these guys are super into it. Like this is their life. They don't date women, they don't like do anything, they just sit in their basement, they play World of Warcraft, and that's okay. I've known those guys, you probably have to. Some of you have been those guys. Yeah, some of those are you. <laughs> some of you guys are those guys. And in the midst of this, as they're all prepped, and they've got this plan, and you can tell they're like a really, really bought into it, one of the guys who has been up getting himself some fried chicken... And hasn't heard any of the plan, comes back and says, oh, cool, we're going to go. And he moves his little character and runs into the room, screaming his own name as a battle cry. And so he runs in there going, Leroy Jenkins. And everybody dies. Because he didn't understand what the plan was. And we have, in the Bible, a Leroy Jenkins moment. Because into the midst of this charged situation, as Jesus is about to once and for all destroy death, consecrating his body as a sacrifice, who steps in to ruin it? But Peter, who decides that Jesus, who can knock everybody down through the power of his own name, is not really capable of dealing with the situation. And so what does he do? He's like, you know what would make this situation better? If I pulled out a sword, because Peter is from Texas, and there's no situation that weapons can't fix. And so he pulled, and you know, I, I want you to think about this, because when we read this, sometimes it's kind of sterile, and we're like, okay, what did he do? Jesus pulled out a sword. Peter, Peter pulled out a sword. And he cuts the ear off the guy that's in charge of the whole group. Now, I want you to think about what that means. You, you don't just go up with a sword and like, like hold still for a second. I'm going to cut your ear off. That means...
means that he pulled out his sword and was trying to cut the guy's head off and wasn't good at it. Because Peter's a fisherman who somehow got a sword. Right? So he pulls out this sword and he goes to hit this guy and it probably ricochets off the guy's helmet, cuts the guy's ear off. He's bleeding everywhere. And Jesus looks at him and is like, Seriously, Peter? I mean, really? Like, you, you just saw, Peter. You saw, like, I spoke and they all fell down. Do you really think that I don't have this under control? Like, and we see there's, like, three different ways that Peter gets rebuked, and it's different in each of the Gospels. So you know that Peter, that Jesus, like, while all the soldiers are standing there looking, Peter's, Jesus is, like, using this opportunity to just kind of harangue, uh, or Jesus is just haranguing Peter. He's like, okay, number one. If I wanted to, I could have 12 legions of angels, which are way more effective than you, a fisherman with a sword that you obviously don't know how to use. Number two, if you use the sword to do godly things, you will die by the sword. You cannot use human means to do godly ends, Peter. You're not going to violent these men into the kingdom of God. What does it say in John? He looks at Peter and says, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? As if to say, do you really think things are outside of my control, Peter? See, Peter is trying to exert his own kind of control on the situation. Peter is faced with the dissolution of all things that he expected, right? Throughout the Gospels, he has been trying to get Jesus to deviate from his path. He has been trying to get Jesus to fulfill the role that Peter thinks he should have. Peter is really no different from the Pharisees or the Sadducees. He doesn't like the direction that Peter, that Jesus is going in, and so he decides to take things into his own hands. He's like, you know what, Jesus? You obviously can't handle this, so we're just going to turn this into a bloodbath, okay? Now, we need to give Peter... A little bit of credit here. Peter doesn't think he's going to win. Peter is so distraught at what is happening here, he does something that is recklessly, stupidly brave. In the face of a detachment of Roman soldiers and temple guards, he's decided, you know what? I'm going to die, but I'm going to kill the leader first, which is kind of a boss thing to do. So I want to give Peter that. But at the end of the day, it just goes to deepen and demonstrate the fact that nobody understood what Jesus was doing. And nobody understood who was actually in control. Well, Jesus has decided that at this point, things have gone off the rails and it needs to come back together. And so the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus, right? We can see like the soldiers who've been standing back looking at this goat rope dumpster fire say, uh, okay, guys. You've had your opportunity, that's cool. We're gonna do what Romans do and that's beat up people and arrest them. So y'all can hang out over here. We're gonna tie Jesus up. See how easy that was? Okay, now we've got him in custody. Now where are they gonna take him? Well, the first they lead him to, An they lead him to Annas, which is kind of an odd place to go because he's not the high priest. He's the father-in-law of Caiaphas who was the high priest for that year. Okay, this is one of those changes that we see, one of those things that is different, right? In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus is arrested and he's taken straight to Caiaphas. Here in the book of John, he goes to Ananias, he goes to Ananias first. Now, why was that? 
Well, because Ananias is really the guy who's in charge of, of Jerusalem at this point. See, Annas was the high priest for a long time. Technically, under Jewish law, if you're the high priest, you're the high priest for life. But the Romans don't really care about Jewish law. So they're like, you know what? We don't like Annas. We're going to remove you from power. And so what happened to Annas was he, he kind of moved back. And instead of being the high priest, he became kind of the godfather of Jerusalem. And so we read in some of the other histories of the time that all of the male members of his family at some point served as the high priest. Okay, that he was the one behind the throne kind of controlling and pulling all the strings. He was the puppet master. And so he's decided, I'm going to figure out who this guy is first. And then we're going to go ahead and move forward with it. And so the soldiers and the temple guards take Jesus to Annas first. I'm going to do this for a couple of different reasons. The first one is under Jewish law, you cannot be convicted on the same day that you're accused. And so Annas understands this. And he also understands that they're under a type timetable because they can't kill a guy on the Sabbath. Because that would be considered work, right? And he doesn't want this guy hanging out for a long time. He doesn't want tempers to cool. He doesn't want his supporters to rise up. This guy needs to be in the ground tomorrow. And so Annas is like, okay, we'll give him an initial hearing before it's midnight, and then he can have his trial the next day, and bingo, bango, we can kill him, and it's no problem. So Annas brings him in and begins to question him. See, Annas thinks he's in control. Because he has been in control. And yet again, not even Annas, the godfather of Jewish politics, is actually in control. We read the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teachings. And when it says the high priest, he's talking about Annas. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogue in the temple where all Jews came together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard what I said to them. They know what I said. This is a man who's on trial for his life, by the way. And he's giving these kind of snarky short answers to the man who holds control over his life. And when he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? We could turn the question around and be, is that how you treat the son of God, the Messiah you've been waiting on all this time? Jesus answered him, if what I said was wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Why indeed? Why did the people who had been waiting on the Messiah their entire lives, the people that had been waiting on the Messiah for the last thousand years, when the Messiah comes in front of them and teaches who he is plainly, why did they strike him? The answer is given in the next passage. When we're told that after Annas had tried him and bound him and sent him to Caiaphas, the high priest... It was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. These men arrested, tortured, and killed Jesus because it was better for one man to die for the people. Not so that the people could continue living in peace and harmony under the Romans, 
but so that the people could once and for all finally have their relationship with God fixed. See, every single person in this entire farce throughout this entire evening and everything that's going to happen the next day, all of these things are working out a plan that has been set from before the beginning of time. These men, each of who think they're in control, are simply acting out a part that has been written for them. They are pieces being moved by God in his sovereign will for a sovereign purpose. And that sovereign purpose is that Jesus would go to the cross innocent, killed by the people who should have known him to work out the salvation of mankind. See, Christ was in control of his passion and his death, and he submitted all to all of it in obedience to God's plan. The passion of Christ was a crime, and it was a tragedy. But at no point in the entire sordid process was it ever outside of God's plan or his direct control. God, who is sovereign over the totality of the human experience, was never absent or silent. In fact, he had told everybody what would happen. As far back as Isaiah, he said that the the suffering servant would be pierced for our transgressions. That the people of God would turn on him. From first to last, he was at the helm of the events and his son Christ faithfully executed his plan even when it meant his certain death. And guys, the, the knowledge of this is just as critical for us now as it was for the disciples in the first century. When, when it's good and critical for us when things are good. Right When we feel no need for God, when we feel like we have it all under control, it's just as important as when we feel like things are out of control. See, we are not in control of the events around us. And that's okay. Because we worship one who is. When evil people around us think they are in control, they're not. When they posture and they preen and they strut. It's important for us to understand that they are not in control. When men like Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping threaten to light the world on fire. And make no mistake. That's what it looks like. When those things happen. It's comforting to remember that they are not in control, that we have known bullies and tyrants and emperors throughout the history of Christianity. And guess what? They're all dead, and we're not. For $5, you can tour the ruins of the empires that all thought that they would crush us, and they're gone. And God's people still remain. Because in the midst of all of the evil and all of the chaos, God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. 
That's us, brothers and sisters. That's us. That means when the missiles are flying into Ukraine and when the planes are being shot down and when the people are fleeing in panic and the cities are being crushed and burned and forest fires rage across the American West and a pandemic sweeps the world. All of those things are being worked together for our good. We may not see it. That's okay. Often it's not for us to see. It's simply for us to believe. Because his faithfulness in the past is the best example of why we should trust him in the future. But, but guys, this is also important when we think we're in control. Because see, the bigger problem often is not Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping or forest fires or the pandemic. It's us. When we think that we're in control of our life, nobody can screw your life up better than you. I mean, you got a master's degree in screwing your life up. Some of y'all got a doctorate in it, okay? Let's be real. There, there are people in this room today who can mess their life and have messed their life up. Because they thought they were in control. They, they thought that they didn't have to listen to what God said. They didn't have to listen to what their parents said. They didn't have to listen to what the law said. That they were a beautiful, shining flower. That they were special and unique. And that the rules didn't apply to them. And everything fell apart. Now listen to me. When we think that we're in control of all things, God comes to us and says, no, you're really not. See, the, the, the person that we probably should relate to more than anybody else in this story it isn't the Sadducees or the Pharisees, and it's definitely not Jesus. The person we really relate to a lot is, is Peter, right? We're the ones who want to short-circuit God's plan. We're the ones who want to force God's plan and take control of God's plan on our own. And when we try to do that, it's important for us to understand that God is in control, but probably the most helpful when we know that when we come to the place in our life when we realize that nobody's in control. Right? Because that's what usually happens afterwards. After we try to control all things, Right? Best example of that is, is our kids. I've, I've gotten to realize that as a parent. Right? When, I, when I've tried to control my children and arrange all things for my children and get everything right for my kids, like I'm going to control it and tell them where they're going to go to school and who they're going to marry and how this is going to work out. And part of being at, a, at a, an older church is I get to see the wisdom of seeing that most of y'all can't control y'all's kids either. I've seen what it looks like when you can't control adult children. And I realized if you can't control adult children then I'm probably not going to be able to control adult children. See, every parent comes to a place in their life when they realize, I'm totally not in control. Right? But that happens in our marriages too, right? We get to a place where we realize, I'm not in control of this anymore. Or our jobs. Or our health. We all come to a place at some point when all of the steps that we've taken, all of the wise decisions that we've made, all end up falling apart. And that's the point where this story really comes to resonate with us. Because when we feel the most out of control, when we feel like everything is falling apart, we are reminded that there is one person who is in control. Right? And even if we have been Peter, 
And even if we did look in the face of Jesus and say, nah, my way's better. I'm going to cut this dude's head off. Everything's falling apart. Guess what? Jesus is still in control. He picks Peter up and he says, ah, oh, you idiot. But that's cool. You still get to be the leader of the church. Right? Over and over again, Peter messes it up. And over and over again, Jesus picks him up and is like, you're not the best, but you're the best that I can do right now. <laughs> you didn't know that was a Christian song. And Peter is still useful in the kingdom. And brothers and sisters, even when you have screwed it all up, even when you have made all the mistakes that are conceivable and some more that aren't, you are still useful in the kingdom of God because it doesn't depend on you. It depends on the one who is in control. Brothers and sisters, I don't know where you are right now. I don't know if you think you're in control of your life and you need to learn that you're not or you know that you ain't in control of your life and you need to know that somebody else is. I don't know where you are, but I know that all of us come to the place this morning of a place where we're broken. I want to encourage you in a moment. We're going to have a time of invitation. This is a time for you to reflect on the sermon, to reflect on the things that we've learned and to apply them to your life. This is a time for a decision as well. Maybe the decision is, that you've been chasing after your own power. You've been operating under your own policies, thinking that you were in control and you need to give up control to somebody else. We, we call that giving your life to Jesus. What, what we mean is that, that you tell Jesus that, that you can't do it anymore. You come to a place where you accept him as the Lord of your life and your Savior. Maybe you've come to that place this morning. We're going to have a time of invitation where you can come forward and we can help you to do that, help you pray through it and surround you with people that can help you. Maybe you've come to that point already. But you need to come up here to the, the front and just pray because your life has fallen apart. Maybe you, you want to join a church. Maybe you want to rededicate your life. I, I don't know what God is doing in your life, but God does. And so I want to encourage you right now as we, as we begin to play this song of invitation, as I begin to pray, I want to encourage you to listen to the voice of God and what he is telling you today. See, we worship a God who is not silent. And every time we come into his presence, he invites us to be on mission with him. He invites us to be obedient to his call. So brothers and sisters, what is he calling you to do this morning? Will you pray with me? Dear Lord. Thanks for listening to this sermon, part of the teaching ministry at Oak Ridge Baptist Church. If you'd like more information about Oak Ridge, you can go to www.orbcnet.com.